But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Ellen Heidi, here today with David Apple to talk about the book of Revelation. David, how are you doing? Doing great, Zellin. Good to be back on. I've been uh, I've been fasting from my uh, word fitly appearance, so I'm I'm happy to be back. <laughs> well, yes, we're glad you have broken your fast to to be with yeah, us again. I, I couldn't say anything about it before because of our Lord's words, but now I can <laughs> now I can speak of such things. <laughs> and Willie is not with us today because he's out in the the wilderness doing something. I'm sure setting yeah, up some good. new kingdom, but. Go on. I'm 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 glad that you uh, you know you kind of kidnapped me here and you've taken me hostage out into the wild. I didn't you didn't have to put that bag over my head and and you know spin me around so many times. But I understand the need for privacy for such things. So and it's it's understandable. Well, wherever you might be right now, how's the weather? Uh, well, let me let me speak of Paducah so that I don't want to I don't want to dox you at all, Zelwyn. In Paducah, it's uh, it, I think it it finally is fall, as the kids call it, autumn. the The leaves are mostly off of the trees. The sun, you know, it never really gets up above I don't know, maybe a fifty degree angle or so. So there's kind of this in, this I I enjoy it. It feels like it's evening all day long, and the the light is golden. So I, I'm enjoying my my fall here. Sounds like a hymn. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and and the weather's up here is is pretty nice too. I mean, we are getting colder for sure, but it's kind of in that late fall kind of feel where you know things are kind of cold, but they're not too cold yet. And it's I I don't know. I enjoy it. Of course, I kind of like it when the weather's a little colder anyway. But yeah, how many hours of daylight are you experiencing up there these days? Do you have more <laughs> than three? <laughs> What's the daylight? I'm not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> what, what, I, what we need Willie to come back and tell us, and I think he's doing research on this, is if indeed the Earth is a disk, what accounts for <laughs> um, what accounts for the fact that the you know we have these these differences in the suns, how high the sun rises? I'm just not quite sure what to say about these things. I want to believe, I do, but you know, help my unbelief. <laughs> Willie's actually delving deep down into the hollow earth right now, and he'll be back eventually <laughs> next There are week, many so. mysteries and secrets to be uncovered down there. Exactly, exactly. Speaking of mysteries and secrets, we're talking about the book of Revelation today. I guess the, the first question that people might be asking is, you know, why? Why are we going through this book, David? Well, because we, we need to know if the vaccine is the mark of the beast or not. <laughs> And so the, we we will answer these and other burning questions on uh, this Revelation series. Right. Well, I mean, and you're absolutely right that, well, not with the vaccine, but you're absolutely right that this book is kind of a book that has a, a continual interest for people because it's a book mm -hmm. that's difficult to understand. It's a book that's full of all kinds of strange symbols and strange pictures. And, you know, what does it all mean? And And when we look at the world today and 
kind of the way things are going today, we might start to be wondering, like, yeah. you know, what is what is God going to do next? And we look to a book like Revelation to try to find that answer, since it speaks of things to come. But I mean, is is that an appropriate thing to do, David? Uh, we don't want to want to sort of pigeonhole ourselves into saying like we only read these books when we feel like you know they they will be relevant to us. So for you know, at the time of the Reformation, obviously, when justification by faith is like the topic that everybody wants to talk about you're going to be you're going to be reading galatians and romans like in in very incredible detail right and not to say that we don't still have an interest in uh, obviously we have a dog in that fight right but it's not it doesn't occupy our minds quite as much it doesn't seem to have the same immediate need to discuss uh, but the questions about the end of the world, questions about the last days, questions about what, what, how the church experiences persecution. I think that's really where I would focus on Zelwyn for, for our listeners that um, we don't just go to the book of Revelation to kind of deal with, you know, something like what does 666 mean? Which is, right. which is a question people, they know that it's in the book, but I'm not sure anybody really has paid much attention to the, you know, the context of, could, could anybody tell you what chapter and verse 666 is? <laughs> probably, probably most people don't, right? Right. But we do feel like there is an increasing level of persecution or um, pushing the church around going on in our times. Um, if anybody's way out there in the future listening to this, the year is 2020. Um, we're in the middle of all these lockdowns and the election results are still uncertain, shall we say. Right. And so there is this sense of what's happening. And so the book of Revelation is all of a sudden becomes not just a uh, a book that has some kind of weird riddles that if you're kind of curious about esoteric matters, you can delve into. But the message itself of Christ being victorious through all these persecutions, all of a sudden becomes like, hey, that is really what we need to be thinking through and talking about. How does the church live through persecution in with the victory of Christ in mind? Right. Yeah, I know that when people sometimes approach the book of Revelation, they sometimes come at it and they think that it is kind of a scary book or kind of a a book that's, you know, full of these terrifying kind of pictures. And as a result, when they see something happening similar in the world, like, you know, there was a, a river a while ago in Russia that would turned red and people were wondering if it was like a river of blood or something like that. Yeah. And they think that, oh, well, that must mean that the end of the world is coming. And so they start to get terrified about it. Is that the purpose of this book? To what? To fascinate? I mean, should should we come away from the book of Revelation oh. terrified, basically? I see what you mean. Um, right. No, the, the exact opposite is the point. There are terrifying things that happen in the world, and there are terrors in the book of Revelation. There are woes, and there are there is lamentation and there is all kinds of persecution and there's lots of fighting going on. Right. But the, the message that is, I think the more you read it, the clearer this becomes that Christ is victorious. Um, the lamb is always conquering, right? Even in the midst of these, the woes and the things that are coming on the earth, there's always this refrain that comes out that, and the lamb was victorious. And so I think that that, that is 
the message of the book and that is the that's the purpose that you read it for not to say like where are we in the timeline you know pre-trib post-trib you know those <laughs> kinds of questions are not really the point of the book of revelation right yeah and i i and i think you you put it well here david that when we read the book and see you know the lamb as the one who is the lion of the tribe of judah the one who has conquered the one who has overcome you know, he is the one who is riding on the white horse, going out to be victorious, you know, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. At every single point, even in the midst of these terrifying pictures, as you say, you see Jesus who has overcome and also the saints who have overcome in him. So even if yeah. they have suffered on account of his name and on account of the witness of Jesus Christ, it is a church that is triumphant in her Lord. And, and looking forward to a, a complete and total victory at the end of all mm -hmm. things, right? Yeah, I think some if, if all we say to our people and, and if all the church says to um, the world is that, hey, Jesus is risen, it's all going to be all right. You kind of have this sort of hollow, there is something, <laughs> thinking of the earth right now, but there is this, <laughs> there's a missing, something's missing there, and that is that comes out very clearly in the book of Revelation that Christ has died, Christ has risen, he's ascended, and he is coming at the end, but he's also leading his church through all of the the struggles and the trials. And there is a call for endurance. How many times does it say this exactly those words? This is a call for the endurance or the perseverance of the saints. And so there is a, both of these things are true, that um, you have the hope of the victory of Christ. You don't have to doubt that. And you're also called to to engage in the in the battle right now. And the other thing I think really drives home this point, too, is seeing how short the time is that is, you know, the, the time of terror, the time of tribulation. I'm thinking of like some of the letters, for example, where you have in Smyrna, where the devil is about to throw some of them in prison. This is in chapter two. And he says, for 10 days, you will have tribulation. 10 days, that's it. Okay, I know that yeah. sounds like a lot because, you know, oh, well, you know, our two-week lockdowns or something like that, it's so long. <laughs> but, but 10 days is nothing in comparison with the thousand years in which Christ will reign. Well, the, see, that this, the lockdowns have helped us understand this. 10 days might turn into, what did 14 days turn into? Nine months? Well, now? true. So. <laughs> okay. True. I just had to say it. Yeah. <laughs> true. But, but, but the point still is, is that even like with the beasts, yes. for example, you know, given 42 months or the short yeah. time after the uh, Satan is released from his prison at the end of the thousand year period, he basically shows up and is immediately squashed. I mean, it's the, yeah. the whole the whole point is, is that not only is Jesus victorious and his kingdom will last forever, these things that we are enduring are actually going to come to an end and that very quickly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Forty two months, one thousand two hundred sixty days uh, right. a time, times and half a time. Those little time references are probably what what Jesus would call yet a little while, you know, in the language of John's gospel, just a little while that we right. experience these things. And then the long time comes, the eternal things. Yeah, exactly. Or the, the three and a half days that the two witnesses are said to be dead. And it yeah. seems like Vic, and it seems like evil has won. And yet they are called up into heaven at the end of the three and a half days. The point is, is that in all of these time references, like you say, it's so short 
in comparison to the victory of Christ, which goes on forever and ever and ever. Right. So anyway, I, I think we've, we've driven home the point of this book now. And I, I, I hope our listeners can see then that to come away from this book terrified is actually to misunderstand its message entirely. So we want to be comforted and be strengthened in the victory of Christ and that evil will have you know a short time because we know that his church will be victorious. What about this? Sometimes this is the, the mentality for people who are reading the book is it's describing things that are way off in the future, right, okay. Yellen? So mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like it, like John saw this in, you know, let's say it was in the year 95, okay, which is kind of the a sort of standard church witness throughout history, right, is that it was a, a late first century vi- vision, Okay. okay. So if he's only describing things that are going to happen way at the end, mm-hmm. it's almost like it's just written to satisfy just sort of fascination or curiosities about the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, would that, is that, I'm, I'm obviously tossing you a softball here, but go ahead and hit it. <laughs> is that the point of the book? No, I, I think if you, I mean, yeah, there are people who approach the book, like you say, in that kind of far off futurist, this is not something that's happening anytime soon kind of way. And I, I really don't think that that's very helpful either, because then you lose the whole point of the book. The, John did not write this letter to the seven churches in Asia in order to just kind of give them, oh, you know, you're, you're going through some rough times, but here's what's going to happen thousands of years in the future. You know? <laughs> Isn't that nice to know? Yeah. yeah, it's like, okay, thanks, but how does that help me, you know, being thrown into prison right now? You know, the, the book of Revelation is written with this kind of, with this immediacy in mind, and it means something to the churches in Asia right then and there, just as it also means something to us right now, not because it's, you know, far off, it's something that's going to happen way, way, way in the future, but because we are a church that is enduring the hatred and the persecution of the world. And when we see that our Lord is victorious over evil, over Satan, over all of the agents of Satan, and everything that this world tries to do to his church, we will find comfort even in the midst of whatever we might be struggling with right now. Yeah, so it's in that way. It's it is it's timely, and it's all it's also what's the way to say it? Maybe it's timeless, right? I mean, he wrote right. it for those first recipients, but it's like Paul's epistles this way. It continues. It has a a, a universal application. It's not just first century stuff. It's not just end of the world stuff. It's not even just twenty twenty stuff. It's like this <laughs> is a book for the church all the time, right? Right. And when you're dealing with the question of, you know, with with the, the Old Testament language that John is borrowing with and, you know, uh, the pictures that he uses, he's drawing on the whole Bible in order to give us this comfort, you know, using the yeah. language of lions, using the language of, of Jesus yeah. having overcome. I mean, the, the whole point is that God has a message to proclaim to us. And that message is, you know, do not be afraid. I am making all things new. You know, and I will come and give my reward to those who overcome. So it it really is a a tremendous comfort, right? Yeah, this would probably be the time when when we should talk about 
apocalyptic things. But um, since <laughs> Willie, our resident seer, is out searching, what's he? Is he? Uh, is he finding a, a new well today? I'm sure he's using divining rods. I'm and not sure other what such he's doing. Yes. <laughs> um, he he couldn't tell us. He said it was a secret. But he he'll want to be in on the discussion of apocalyptic. Uh, literature. Well, that's also partly because he wants to talk about Enoch at the same time. So, right. right. <laughs> so we'll so we'll wait on apocalyptic literature per se. But uh, maybe a couple of quick questions before we go into break here, just to kind of talk about the book itself. You had mentioned uh, the dating of the book. You also had mentioned that John had written the book. Yeah. I mean, is is there any? I mean, why why ninety five? You know, what's going on at that time period? And are there uh, any other options for dating the book? The reason that it's pretty widely accepted as 95, at least within the church, I mean, if you go into the scholarly community, who knows, right? They'll come up with just about anything. You always got to publish a paper, <laughs> right? But I think it's Irenaeus, and there's another, it uh, starts with an H, I'm forgetting the father's name, but they're quoted in Eusebius's church history, which was kind of a, the standard church history book. And they both say that John wrote during the reign of Domitian, Caesar right. in Rome, which is, I think his reign was like 81 to 98, something like that, late, kind of the, the f- tail end of the first century. Right. The There is another theory, and there are parts of this that I that I like that dates it earlier. Irenaeus says 95, and who am I to you know, say, no, he was wrong. Um, but the, the theory is that it was written during the reign of Nero, right. which was in, would have been around 65, sometime around there before the temple is destroyed. Now, in both cases, Nero and Domitian, both are persecuting the church. So in both cases, you have the immediate context is Roman persecution from the highest levels against the church. I think our, our readers or our listeners are going to be familiar with Nero and the, the various descriptions of how he, you know, lit the Christians on fire as torches in the night, things like that. I mean, he was the quintessential enemy of the church as a Roman Caesar, but Domitian was no friend of the church either. So whether you dated in 65 or 95, you have that Caesar persecution of the church And you also have this other thing, really, especially during Domitian. Domitian published a decree that he should be referred to as God and Lord, which if you're a Christian in the Roman Empire, obviously those two titles are, you know, those are pretty much reserved for (laughs) the true God. And so you're not going to be doing that. But and, and most people say that that was really the beginning of Caesar worship in Rome on like a form in a formal way was during Domitian. But you can look back and you can see that they did deify Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Now, after their death, they deified them. But there was already the beginnings of a cult of the emperor, even back during Nero's time. So I'm just presenting that as there. it's possible that you had increased persecution under Nero and the beginnings of emperor worship, or you go with kind of the universal (laughs) acceptance of the church, which, you know, should have some, that should say something for us, which is 95. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think either one, I mean, we, we're not going to get into it a lot of detail in this episode, but I mean, you know, 
whether you have the earlier date with Nero or the later date with Domitian, I mean, it's only like a 30-year gap that we're talking about. Like you say, the whole point is that it is a church under persecution. And I mean, yeah, these things actually do get worse even after the time of Domitian. So this even isn't even like the very the very depths of persecution that Christians experience. But the but the whole point is is that in either case, we have a church which is under duress, a church which is wondering about its future, and therefore we have a church which needs to hear the victory of Christ. But with, with that, we're on our first break, so we'll be right back after the after this with more word fitly spoken. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Zelton Heidi here on A Word Fitly Spoken, together with David Apple talking about the book of Revelation. Well, in the first section, David, we had just got done talking about why the book is written and the kind of the purpose and the themes of the book. But now I think perhaps as part of our overview of this book, we should talk about some of the, the most striking imagery of the book, because it is a book full of very interesting pictures, sometimes very confusing pictures, but certainly not forgettable ones, right? I mean, you have all throughout this book, all kinds of pictures, right? Yeah, and that's like what? right. And that's really probably one of the key features of the book is that you have these, well, an apocalypse is a vision, right? A revelation. And, and John records in pretty great detail all the the appearances. What we want to go through now is the the way that Jesus appears to John. And and there's it's not just Jesus who appears. I mean, he does have a, a slight glimpse of God the Father, and there are a few references to the appearance of the Holy Spirit. So you have a Trinitarian presentation here, and we can go through each person of the Trinity, I think would, would be good, Zellin. But Jesus, of course, dominates the the vision here. So do you want do you right. want to start at the just with the first vision of Jesus and just kind of go through it? What do you want to do? Well, I think maybe just to, as a way of really getting going here, I want to look at verse four and verses four and five as part of the introduction of the book in chapter one, because this is John writing to the churches which are in Asia. And I just, because you, you mentioned the Trinitarian nature of this book, and I think this really emphasizes it. You know, John says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come which, of course, is a reference to the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, a reference to the Holy Spirit, 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of kings on earth. I mean, already just in the introduction, you know, as he's giving this kind of Trinitarian invocation, we see Jesus as being faithful, as being the one who has risen, and also the one who is over all the kings of the earth. So, I mean, the, the way that Jesus is depicted, even in these first few sentences, is as one who is conquering, right? Yeah, who is already, and I, I think it's of of importance that it says over the kings of the earth, right? He's not, so all authority right. in heaven and on earth has been given to him. There is no part of the world outside of his, of the universe outside of his power. Now, even as, as we say that, what you're going to see in the book of Revelation is that it's not an uncontested authority, right? The devil right. and his beasts and his agents want to assert their own independence and their own authority. And to some extent, it appears that they can and that they do. But you get the, these visions of Jesus serve as sort of bookends in Revelation in chapter one, and then it's going to come back in chapter 19, which is right before the end, where you have him presented in just these glorious, victorious, highly exalted terms. Right. Well, let's look at the first one then in chapter one, the, the very first major vision of the book, where John, who is on Patmos because of the because of the the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus is on is in the spirit and hears a voice like a trumpet, which tells him to write everything. And then he turns around and he sees what, David? Yeah, he sees. Uh, well, he sees Jesus, the glorified Lord, and he the vision is so glorious. This is typical of visions of God in the Old Testament. When the prophets see the Lord, they they fall down, right? So you can think of Isaiah who falls down when he sees the Lord. It doesn't and in Isaiah, this is an interesting contrast, I think, Zoan. Isaiah doesn't even try to describe the sight of God. Like he doesn't say anything right. about his face. He only talks about the train of his robe. And then he talks about right. the angels. Um, but it's almost like he's intentionally not, he, words can't express what he sees, right? He's so overcome. And he falls down and says, woe is me, I'm undone. And the same thing happens with John here. He sees Jesus and he, even though he was a disciple of the Lord, he sees him in a, in a different way. There is a the elevated state, right? I mean, dogmatically, we would say he had seen him in his state of humiliation. Now he's seeing Christ in the state of exaltation, and it's more than he can bear. So he falls down as one dead. Um, he's just knocked right. out. Right. Well, and it's it's important to mention there too, because you said like Isaiah doesn't even try to describe what God looks like, just kind of what he, the little bit that he sees. I think uh, something that is a parallel to here to Revelation is what Ezekiel does in chapter one, when he sees the vision of God on his throne and the four living creatures surrounding him. He's always kind of setting his descriptions behind a couple of other words. So he'll say, it's kind of like something like this. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and that's kind of what John is doing here, too. He says, you know, one who... One who is like having the appearance of a, of the Son of Man. So, I mean, it's kind of like saying, you know, I'm trying to describe to you what I saw. And God, of course, is helping me to write, you know, in, in a way that has meaning. But ultimately, what John sees is beyond his ability to fully describe. Yeah. And so he has to grab a hold of things that we can understand, right? 
That's why he says one like a son of man in verse 13, you know, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I mean, the, the picture here obviously is one who is Jesus. I mean, he is appearing as the son of man, but he also has these descriptions that are charged with very significant meaning. Yeah. Do you, do you yeah. want to break those down, David? Yeah, I think that's the, this is the beauty of the book is that you have, you have Jesus appearing, you know, theoretically, he could have worn whatever he wanted to wear, right? And I guess, theoretically, he could have come to John with whatever haircut he wanted to have. Um, He can, (laughs) he can do whatever he wants to do. So the, the way that he chooses to appear to John is deeply symbolic, right? It's deeply uh, meaningful. And the, the joy of the book is one, you can, you can actually imagine these things for yourself, right? And I remember, my vicarage congregation, it was in St. Paul's in Hillsdale. So Sean Willman, if you're listening, you need to post about this in the Word Fitly posting group. And they had this, I think their their main stained glass in the in the building was an attempt to put this vision into stained glass. Hmm. Now it was an attempt to do it, but it, there were things that were a little bit off. And I remember as a vicar sitting there thinking, well, if I had been here, I would have done this, that, or the other thing. But, you know, what do I know? I can't right. I can't make glass. But, okay, <laughs> here's the point. Jesus, uh, his clothing, right, this long robe and the golden sash, they're probably meant to, to remind John of the high priest's garments. Um, right. So the, these are the, the word for the, the long robe is also the word that was used um, to describe the high priest's what his vestments, I guess we'd say. And then right. the, the vision here, the, the idea of a belt around, like going around the weight, the chest is kind of an odd one because we wear our belts around our waist, of course. But uh, if you read your Josephus, he does talk about <laughs> the high priest wearing a girdle or wearing a sash that was um, basically up above your elbows. So huh. right around the chest. So it may be that both of these, the, the long robe and the sash, are meant to be priestly garments. So you have Jesus appearing as the high priest of the, of the heavenly realm and the high priest who protects the church, right? Who intercedes for his people. Well, of course, you're going to latch on to high priest language, you know, yeah, being yeah, yeah. the lover of Hebrews that you are. Yes. But... I, I think that's also that's that's a great point, and I think it's also significant that Jesus is described as the Son of Man before the description as the High Priest, because if you remember in Daniel chapter seven, and anyone who's on the one year lectionary and did the skip, so you had Trinity twenty six this past Sunday would remember, you know, that the Son of Man is the one who is given dominion; he's given the kingdom. Yeah, great so point. He is the King. So he is not only the king, he is also the high priest, as you say, by the way that he appears. Now, what about the, the language of his hair um, being white? What, is, yeah. what does that have to do? Well, I think a lot of this is old te- the, the primary background that we should have for, for the revelation of John. And Willie can, 
he he may disagree with this, but he he's not here, and his opinion on this doesn't matter. <laughs> the, the background is the Old Test, the canonical books of the Old Testament, not Enoch and Baruch and all these other weird things. Right. <laughs> so Daniel is certainly the background, and in the book of Daniel, you get this: the description of the Ancient of Days is where you have the his hair is white like wool. Well, now right. what was true about the Ancient of Days, which you know, if we're reading it as Christians, this is a description of the father in the book of Daniel is also shared by the son. So the son of man in Daniel is Jesus, of course, in John, in John's vision, he's seeing Jesus and the, the same things that are true of the father, the ancient of days are also now present in the glorified Christ. So that same pure white hair, which, you know, in scripture, the hair, the the white hair and the is your crown of glory. It, I think it's symbolic of old age, which also connotes um, wisdom and intelligence. These things are present in Jesus to the same degree they are in God the Father. Well, and we can't overlook the fact too that you know the the transfiguration, Jesus appears as you know bright white, whiter than anything yeah. that can be you know done by a fuller on earth. So I mean the, the 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 color of white, yeah, connecting him to God the Father, showing his divinity in this case. So he's not only the one to whom authority is given; he's not only the high priest; he is also the living God, the one who has come to John to to give him this vision and to give him uh, a a word of comfort in the midst of all of this. Yeah, and the eyes as of fire. I think again, you're seeing this. Um, there is a. It's not just pure reliance on the book of Daniel, right? When Jesus appears, he doesn't, he could have just appeared exactly the way he appeared to Daniel, right? Mm -hmm. So, but there is a, there is a change or there is a, a progress that has occurred from the old to the new. And so the vision is both, it is a, in some ways it's repetitive of what Daniel saw, but it's also advancing what Daniel saw. So Remember in Daniel's vision, the throne is fire and there's flames coming out of the throne that mm -hmm. consume the little horn that's saying so much. Right? I love that mm -hmm. part in Daniel. Well, in, <laughs> in John's vision, he doesn't see a fiery throne, but he sees that same fire, the purifying, um, consuming fire of the Lord is present in the eyes of Jesus. I mean, just powerful stuff there. Sure. Yeah, that he is the one who is all holy. He is the one, you know, who yeah. I guess you could say you know, sees all things because, you know, he is the one who is who is going to take care of us in all things. Yeah, no. And I, I, I think that's that's an excellent point, too. Uh, you also have there with his feet, though, uh, being the color of bronze refined in a furnace. What what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, the so the the and the. Uh, we were talking a minute ago, the Greek word is uh, one of these that's only used here in all of Greek literature. So it's it's a little bit difficult to discern exactly what we're talking about, but that's part of the vision. I mean, you heard as you, or I heard as you read it, he keeps saying like, like, it's like this, right? So this is, we can get close, but maybe not have the perfect, you know, the perfect idea in our mind. But this is also very reminiscent of the Old Testament visions. So in Daniel 7, you have the vision of the Son of Man. In Daniel 10, a lesser known part of the book, but you have a vision of another heavenly figure. And mm -hmm. there's, 
I think there's some debate on this. It seems pretty clear to me that he sees he's seeing the Son of God at the beginning of chapter 10. And then an angel, I think it is it Gabriel who comes to him and explains right. the vision right. to him. I'm pretty sure that it's a different, an angel comes to explain who he saw, what he saw. But that even if we're not supposed to make that connection, it's all over Ezekiel. Anytime they see God, he's he's looking like gleaming metal, burnished bronze. And that's the same thing that's happening here with Jesus. Sure, sure. Yeah, so again, a description of who he is as God, a description of, you know, that, well, I suppose you could even argue that, you know, he is the one who has gone through the fire. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Refined as in a furnace. You know, he is not not saying that he's like suffering in hell or something like it. Not That's not the point, but that he has gone through the same fires of tribulation that his people have. And so, but yet he is the one who died and yet now lives. So, I mean, I mean, I think that's all connected there, too. Just to kind of finish up the or to get towards the end of this a vision, though, it says then that his voice is like the roar of many waters. Uh, what what kind of connections should we make with that? I think this is the description in Ezekiel, isn't it, of when the when the cherubim move, their wings make the sound of the rush of many waters. Right, okay. and I I think it's also it comes in at the end of Ezekiel. You can look this up if you're curious. There's there's so much Old Testament resonance here where, okay, the idea is it's just this ethereal sound It's and it's this loud, the intensity and the, the volume is just through the roof, right? It's turned up to right. 11. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the power and the authority that comes along with that is clear. That's why when I preach, I only, I just yell the whole time <laughs> um, to convey authority. No. Right. His, if you're not screaming, are you actually being an authority? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, well, I think it also recalls a passage like Psalm 29, where you have the description of the voice of the Lord, you know, breaks the cedars of Lebanon, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and all in his temple cry glory. You know, this description of the voice being powerful, the voice being something yeah. that can do great things. And to have it described as, you know, like like the rush of many waters or described like many waterfalls or however you want to picture it, it shows this great authority, one that cannot be stopped. But also together with the waters, you have an interesting image, a one that I think is also very much a Hebrews kind of image, the sharp two-edged sword coming forth from his mouth. What What should we make of that? I had a, a friend in high school who he he wanted to say he really liked this, and he he wanted to say that uh, when Jesus comes again, he's literally there's going to be a sword coming out of his mouth, and we're going to see that, and that's what we're going to see for the rest of our lives. And I thought, well, I think it's supposed to be. I mean, I, I believe that John saw this, but it's the symbolic <laughs> thing that is the importance here, right? Which is that the right. sword. This is how. Uh, he defeats his enemies, right? So in Hebrews, the word of the Lord is um, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces us, right, to the to the joint and marrow. And the same thing here, we're setting up at the beginning of the book of Revelation, where there's going to be battles. What is the what is the weapon that the Lord uses in his in his fight? Well, it's it's his word. It's the voice that proceeds from his mouth, and that is powerful enough to conquer all of these beasts that we're going to encounter later. Right, right. Yeah. No, I, 
And just taking this whole section to describe just the first vision, I think shows the richness of this book. I think it shows the uh, the importance of these images as well. We also mentioned like with the seven stars that he's holding in his right hand. Yeah. I think that's an interesting one. That one's actually explained for us at the end of the chapter one. Yeah. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches to which John is writing. And I'm, I'll just make the argument that I'm, I think that these are the, the, the pastors of these different churches that he's holding in his hand. And he, it shows not only that he holds them in his right hand, which is, of course, the right hand of power, the right hand of salvation, the right hand of his might, but it also shows that, you know, they are in his care. And uh, we kind of skipped over. I just want to cover this real quick, and then I'll let you add to it, David. We skipped over him walking in, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which are described as being the seven churches, which shows mm-hmm. that Jesus, the one who is God, the one who is powerful, the high priest, all these things, is walking among his church. So, I mean, the whole the whole vision in this first chapter is a vision of God with his people who is mighty to save and who is going to take care of us in everything. Yeah, I think I think that's an important point, Zelwyn. So like the if if John just saw this taking place up in heaven and there was no connection to the church on earth, it would be great for John. It would be cool. It would be, you know, <laughs> an amazing, you know, he's going to go and tell his friends about the vision, but the fact that Jesus has the pastors of the church in his right hand, like you said, and that he is present, you know, invisibly to us, he's showing himself to John. But the message is, look, even though I am hidden from your sight, I walk among the lampstands all the time. So this glorious Lord is also present with his church, not only in heaven, but on earth. And uh, that provides the confidence that John is going to need for the things that, and that we need for the things that we're going through now and the things that will come upon us later. Right. And I think it's very telling that when John does fall down and Jesus touches him with that right hand and says, fear not, I'm the first, the last, you know, the, the living and the living one, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. It really does again, drive home that point. Jesus is the one who is with his people. And so even if we are about to suffer what is about to happen, Jesus is still with us. So with that, we're going to have to go into our second break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I am Zelwyn Heidi here today with David Apple talking about the book of Revelation. David, in the previous section, we had been talking about Jesus and how he appears in Revelation chapter 1 as a way of talking about the, the visions and the pictures of the book of Revelation. And I think we've kind of covered that one in enough detail. So we should also maybe consider another picture of Jesus, which appears in the book of Revelation, one that's very familiar to all of our listeners, that of the Lamb, which, yeah. of course, occurs in Revelation chapter 5. So do you want to take us into that one? Sure, right. What we're trying to do with this episode is just kind of give a, a, I don't know, a teaser is not the right word I'm looking for, Zelwyn, but hopefully pull you into the thought world, the visionary field of of the book of Revelation, and, and hopefully you'll go in and read it for yourself. But um, what happens after the vision of Jesus in chapter one is you get the, the, Jesus dictates the letters to John that he's supposed to write to each of the churches. So chapters two and three, you don't have visions anymore. You have say this, say this, say this, and then Jesus dictates the letter. Then in chapters four and five, John sees the vision of um, what's going on in heaven, and it is the the worship of God on the throne and then of the Lamb. So without giving you the whole, I wish we could just do verse by verse, right, Zelwyn? But here's here's what happens. When he sees into heaven, he sees God the Father seated on the throne, and he has in his hand a, a scroll with seven seals, which is going to be important because those seals, as, the, as they're opened, as those seals are broken, that's what happens in that first cycle of all these things that take place on the earth, okay? But- right. In order to open the scroll, someone has to be worthy to break open the seals. And at first, no one is worthy. And then the lamb comes forward, and he's worthy to do it, right? John gets sad because, hey, nobody's going to be able to open that scroll, and I really wanted to see what was in there. And so then the angel (laughs) tells him, don't worry, Jesus is coming. So the vision in chapter 5 is no longer in these terms of one like a son of man, but now John sees a lamb. And the lamb, it's an interesting description. It's not nearly as detailed as chapter one, but it just says he's in the midst of the elders. He's in the midst of the throne. So he's he's right there with God the Father. And if you look in five verse six, he's standing as one who was slain, which is a right. an, an odd description. So as I was trying to imagine this myself, I tried to think like, is there something about his posture that indicates somehow that he was slain? And I think what's often, at least in my mind, this came in somewhere, is that he has this wound. Is this later in the book, Zelwyn, where he has a, a wound that can be seen? Like, that's how you know that he was actually slain? Well, I mean, Jesus oh, Jesus appears to his disciples with the wounds. I mean, that's that's part of it. But yeah. I honestly, honestly, David, I think I think the image is very s- simple here. You have a lamb, and how do you how do you slay a lamb as one whose like throat has been cut? Yeah, sure, right, because he has been sacrificed. In fact, the word mm-hmm. used for for slain here is you know, is a word that's very often used to mean you know sacrifice. It's used of right. animals, the way that you slaughter an animal. Right, right. So I mean, but the point is, is that you know his his blood has been spilled. And, you know, he is standing, you know, with these wounds still visible. 
as a lamb, yeah. you know, in this case, as one who has been slain. But Jesus himself appears this way in showing his hands and his sides to his disciples. So I think it's really just a, a different way of, of explaining that vision of the Gospels as well. Yeah. So then the it goes on to describe, and this is where it, it becomes sort of this otherworldly kind of a lamb. So he, he is a lamb, and you can think of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can think of all the Old Testament references to the lambs. What, you've got the Passover lamb, you've got the, isn't it a lamb that's offered in the daily offering, the burnt offering in the right. morning and the evening? right. Perhaps even, this might be a bit of a stretch, but the substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac is, I think it's a ram, but that is a right. male sheep, right? But anyways, right. the the description <laughs> goes on to say he's got seven horns and seven eyes. So <laughs> at that point, you're you're really, okay, this is a lamb unlike anything I've ever seen before. And this happens often in the book of Revelation where you have these sevens, and it is uh, actually told what this means. The seven eyes especially are, it says, the seven spirits of God, which go out into all the all the earth. So right. not only do you have a vision of the Lamb, Jesus, in the midst of the throne of God the Father, you also see the Holy Spirit right there with Jesus. So you know, this, I don't know, this gets into the whole um, question about the the procession of the spirit. He proceeds from the father <laughs> and the son, right? I mean, that's probably pushing right. it beyond what John is seeing, <laughs> but you can see the the identity or the, the unity of the son and the spirit. I shouldn't say identity. It's they're unified. They work together. Right. There is no, right. okay, now we've got the Holy Spirit at work over here and Jesus is absent from the picture. It's it's a unified work. Right. Well, and, and don't overlook his horns either because horns, well, the image of a horn in the Old Testament and the image, well, it's, it's going to mean something a little bit different in other visions in in the in Revelation, but the image of, of a horn is the image of ruling. It is the image of strength. Uh, it is the image of one who has power, you know, that you you have mighty horns. You think of like Micaiah standing before Jehoshaphat, for example, and the false uh, prophets are holding up horns kind of a saying and saying to the, the kings, you know, with these, you will push back your enemies kind of a thing. So it's mm-hmm. it's that image of the one who has authority and power. And for him to have seven of them, of course, is significant. Why, David? Seven being the symbolic, the symbolic number of completion. Sometimes people say it's the it's the perfect number. It's the the number of perfection that goes all the way back to creation. In six days, God makes the the world and He rests on the seventh. So seven takes on this symbolism of of being complete, absolute. It's all all there. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is a a pretty glorious picture that we see here of the Lamb on the throne, receiving the scroll from the hand of the Father, and also as he goes on to open those seven seals that are holding it closed. Um, Is there anything you want to add to to this image before we we dig into another one? I would just put in the, um, just so that we we do cover something of the Father. The, The Father is not described in as much detail as the Son, but in chapter four, he's described having the appearance of, what does it say, jasper, and I can't remember the other precious stone right now, 
But you have this description of the father looking like these precious jewels, and he's got a rainbow going all around him, which of course recalls the the promise to never destroy the earth with a flood. So I, I do think that that's significant, Zalwin, that right before the seals start to get broken and there's all these terrible things happening on the earth, we're reminded that the seals come from the one who um, is surrounded by the rainbow. And so even in the midst of the these these awful things that are coming, the four horsemen come out of the seals, you do have this this background of God's covenant with with the earth that he's not going to destroy it, at least by means of a flood. Right. Well, and don't don't overlook one other detail since we're talking about the father here. The the rainbow is not an ordinary rainbow, right? There in chapter four, it's described as having the appearance of an emerald. So in other words, it's a green colored rainbow. That's that seems like a very interesting detail. I do think that the the rainbow imagery does recall Noah and the promise that was made, but I think that that specific detail of it being green in color has something to do with and this is just me kind of speculating, but it's the same word used in the Greek Old Testament to describe the stones uh, put onto the priest's garment on which the the names of the tribes were written. So I think this is this is also something that is showing the promise that is being made. You know, it is green in that sense as as the one who has made these promises, also as the one who has Israel, you know, the the church written on, you know, around him kind of thing. He's not sure. forget us in the midst of all of this. Yeah, but. and I think um, as we're doing this, Zelwyn, I mean, it just comes out so clearly that the the book of Revelation is not a, it's not like somebody's overactive imagination, right? It's not a right. degenerate. It's not a. It's not like a a letdown in terms of like, oh, wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it have been better if John had just written everything in narrative, like historical right. narrative? The the <laughs> the purpose, and that we'll do another episode just on thinking about apocalypticism. But at least I, I want to at least put this out there right now that the it's not a letdown, but this is like. It's in some ways it's the climactic book of the of the New Testament of the whole Bible, and there's so much in there that as you read it, it's not the kind of book that you just read and you say, "All right, I think I got it all." You know, it requires time, it requires attention to detail, like you just uh, showed for us. You know, it's not only a rainbow, but it's a rainbow that is also um, the color of emeralds, and so there's there's so much in John's vision. That the de- that it all is significant, you know, right, right, yeah. And I wish we had more time to really dig into it. And if and if you, our listeners, want us to dig in, like really, you know, more deeply into some of these things, let us know. You know, we're we're more than willing to go into this because I think you can tell that we both are deeply interested in this book and or the things that it has to to say. And of course, we'll get Willie in, in on this too once he gets back from his own visions. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the things that he is seeing right now uh, can't be put into human language. So we'll, we'll exactly on that. <laughs> well, let's look at, we've talked about God in, in the great amount of detail, which is important, which helps us to see things here. But what are some of the other characters of the book of Revelation? If you want to use that language, what are some of the most important yeah. images which we see? Yeah, the I think that the, okay, so the vision of Jesus is the most important vision of the father and the spirit. Then there are these uh, lesser characters. I don't know what else to, to call them, 
Um, you have the four horsemen. I think our people are familiar with that, whether it's through the book of Revelation or probably more likely just through derivative things of the book of Revelation, uh, horror movies and, and such. Wrestling, but, as it were, but go yeah, on. There you go. Um, that's that's better than, than a horror flick, right? Chapters 12 and 13 have the, the dragon, the devil described, and then his beasts. And I think, I know I was talking with you, Zelwyn, and uh, I said something about the beast, and you said, well, which one? Because there's at least, well, there's three beasts, maybe even a fourth beast. So there's actually quite a few beasts described in the book of Revelation, and they're not exactly the same. There's, there seems to be overlap in them. And as we go through the book in later episodes, we'll talk about, you know, the various ways to explain, like, is John seeing the same thing on in a loop? Or is he seeing something that's progressing from, you know, um, step to step to step? But for, for our purposes today, I think it'd be good to, to at least broach the, the dragon, his beasts, the whore of Babylon. These things are, who are the enemies of the church? Yeah. And I, I, I think we're going to run out of time. We might only have time for chapter 12 here. But let's talk about the, the dragon in chapter 12 and how he is presented. So uh, in chapter 12 in the book of Revelation, you have another sign appearing in heaven. Of course, the great sign before this being the woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, giving birth. And then another vision appears, which is a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Okay, so what what is the picture, and who is this dragon that we are talking about? Yeah, well, first of all, we should say that just as we believe in the existence of things and creatures like yourself, Zelwyn, we don't discount <laughs> the fact that dragons uh, that dragons may have existed. So we'll leave that for another time, though. Right. What's what's being described here is is the devil, and that's clearly listed out by John a couple of verses later. He says the devil, that ancient serpent, the great dragon, these are all synonyms for the devil and Satan. Um, these are all just different names that are given to describe the the evil one. Okay. And what why is it significant that he is well a dragon? You know, what what what's the point of that? Yeah, I think dragon is pretty universally seen to be an enemy, a, a creature that is that is opposed to humanity, right? It is not a tameable creature. It's not you're not going to find ever, you know, people who are. I don't care what the Vikings did; they did not tame dragons, and they didn't fly around on them. So it is a creature of death and destruction. <laughs> Hiccup wants to have words with you. Yeah, but, yeah right, right. <laughs> but I mean, also dragon being a, a serpentine creature, you know, the one who yeah. is, uh, you know, that, that it's, I think it's just another way of describing his serpent-like nature, which of course is uh, referring back to the, the fall in Genesis chapter three, when Dave, uh, when, when Satan appeared as uh, in the guise of a serpent or used a serpent to carry out his bidding, to cause the fall of mankind. So, you know, the one who is opposed, like you said, the one who is against mankind. Why is it red? <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's there's two possibilities. I'll do one and you can take one. I think red is the color of anger. Okay. okay. And I, I, that's all, all I'll say on that. You, I know you have another theory. Well, I mean, I, I'm, and I'm willing to debate you on this, but 
No. The, the, the word red is also used back in chapter 6 and verse 4 to describe the second of the horsemen, the horse on which he's riding, being described as bright red. And that uh, horse and the rider are described as taking peace away from the earth. So I think it's a description. I think it's meant to do the same thing, to describe how Satan comes in order to take peace, in order to cause division among mankind. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So... Okay, well, what about is this this imagery of having like seven heads? <laughs> right. So what? we we saw, yeah, this again. When when you've got apocalyptic literature, you're getting visions that are not strictly speaking just kind of quote unquote normal. So we saw this with the lamb in the previous. Right. What do we call these things? The previous <laughs> segment. Um, there we go. And so now the dragon also has something super super earthly about him. And so the the heads and the horns, you mentioned horns being a symbol in the Old Testament of royalty, of kingly rule. It would seem that the dragon is, well, I think this, this came in the book of Daniel, right? When Daniel sees these beasts that represent earthly kingdoms, he sees um, different horns growing up on the beast. And the horns seem to be indications of individual kings that um, come at different times. So the the devil, the dragon here, I wouldn't take it to mean that he that there are different um, kings who are like possessed by the devil. But I think it's it's sort of the idea here that he is the ultimate king of the kingdoms of man. So they are individual horns, but he has seven horns, or I'm sorry, seven heads. Um, and on each of those heads, he has a diadem, a royal, you know, a royal crown on his head as a symbol of his authority. Now, the the use of seven here is, I think, a a sick kind of mimicking or a satanic mockery. Uh, he's trying to impersonate the lamb. So the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. The dragon has seven heads because he is trying to pass himself off as the, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And you're going to see that, we're going to see that in the beasts too. They they oftentimes have this sevenfold something to them. And it's done in imitation of the lamb. Right. Right. We're not going to have time to get to the beast today, unfortunately, because uh, we're running out of time in this episode. But I, I, I think your point of that, that kind of satanic mockery, that satanic uh, imitation is important here, because if nothing else, it shows that the devil has come to try to claim authority for himself. I think it's telling, for example, that he has seven crowns on his heads, you know, one for each head. And you look back to, say, chapter I think it was, with the elders and their crowns, which would have been given to them. But what do they do when they worship the Lord? They cast yeah, they, their crowns down, right? Right, right. They, they throw them down. They admit that, you know, they're, they don't have this authority because it's theirs inherently. They, they're saying that, you know, you are the one who has these things, you know, and I'm giving it back to you kind of a thing. Whereas the devil, as the dragon, keeps the crown on his head. And for that reason, he's trying to claim an authority for himself. But right. uh, he, he wants to appear, he wants to appear and he's the ultimate usurper, right? So he wants to appear as having authority. So it's not even enough to have one crown. He's going to, 
um, he's always overdoing it, right? He's like, um, he's like a girl putting on makeup for the first time. It's just too much. <laughs> that that's quite, that's quite an image. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, maybe as, as we're coming to the end of our episode here, David, how do you, how do you want to tie up this, this part of a revelation revelation chapter 12 what what do you really want to drive home with this image and how do you want to, and where does the the dragon end up in the book of revelation yeah i think it's it's worth pointing out here that there are the the victory of christ is not does not mean that there is nothing left for the church to do there is there are battles to be fought there are there are victories to be won in the power of christ and guided by his spirit now some I can already hear the keys clacking, suffering, 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 cross, cross, cross. Uh, and I, I don't discount that, that the, the victories of the church are not always obvious, right? They are, they're oftentimes hidden under our sufferings. But what I, what I think is helpful in the book of Revelation, and this is a repeat of something we said back in, in the first segment, is that the, the church does have enemies, and there is a fight to be engaged in. So even while you have the opening vision of Jesus as this glorious, powerful, all authoritative king, you also have the vision of the devil as someone who wants to pass himself off as that king. And he has beasts and he has, there's a whore who's going to come in later. And the book of Revelation is powerful, not just because it is vivid but because it's so, it it helps us understand the the world that we are living in and living through right now. That there will be there will be a dragon out there and his beasts who who must be engaged with by us, right? So I don't know. It's not really a call to arms, but I guess it is, right, Zellin? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And maybe as a way of t- emphasizing too, I mean, the devil may claim to have authority. He may have pretenses to being a king. You know, he might even think that he is actually the lamb, you know, with his satanic imitation. But ultimately, he will end up in the lake of fire, and he will end oh, up right, being right, right. squashed to the so that... Even if we have to face these things now, yet Christ remains victorious over all things, because that really is the driving message of this book. Any last or final yeah. thoughts before yeah. we close it up today? No, I think uh, there's there's so much more to discuss in the book of Revelation, and I think you and I um, are tasked with kind of t- going through it. And um, I would just, I guess I'd, I'd say if there's certain details or things that we've left out, be patient. We're going to get to, you know, we're going to get to the trumpets and the cycles of seven and things like that. So there's, there's a lot more to, to say about the book. Yeah. And if there's something specific you want us to talk about or go into detail on, let us know. You know, you can always contact us and just drop us a, a note and let us know what you want to hear. Well, David, thank you for being on again. It's glad to have you back. Glad to have you back. And uh, looking forward to being back with you again. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to it. Take care, Zellin. This has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you've heard, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zellin Heidi here today with David Appold. God love you and God bless.
Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords.